Welcome back to episode nine of season three of the Coaches Coffee Club podcast. I'm joined with Matt, as always. Hello, Matt. Hello, mate. You okay? Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, <clears throat> this week, we were joined by Ben Bartlett, and he's currently head of coaching at Fulham, uh, someone who has had a big influence on Matt and myself as coaches. Um, Matt, how did we get to know Ben, and what did we cover tonight? Yeah, so Ben worked at the FA for a, a long time before moving to Fulham. So we've come across him in various roles. Probably one we'd talk about a lot in the podcast is his delivery on the A license that we were on and how that impacted us uh, on our coaching. So some really interesting stuff about his coaching philosophy, uh, his thoughts, how he sees the world and uh, some quite practical stuff that you could use and practice while coaching as well. Very good. Yeah, brilliant. Um I thoroughly enjoyed uh, catching up with Ben again. I'm, I'm sure there's lots of bits in there that will spark some more curiosity or, or just make you think differently about how you particularly structure your constraints or your challenges in your sessions. So, um, yeah, definitely give this a listen. Please share it. Um, we passed a milestone in the week, which Matt and I are quite proud of. 15,000 listens on our current platform, which is staggering. Uh, and then add to that the fact that the 10,000 listens we'd had before moving to this platform were not included. So 25,000 times people have listened to Matt and I ramble on to random people <laughs> loosely connected to uh, coaching and coach development. So uh, I guess we just want to say thank you. We really appreciate it. And it's quite humbling to, to see those figures. So uh, yeah, thanks for, for supporting. And, and hopefully you've, you've took at least one or two things from each episode. I know Matt and I have. Um, yeah, Matt, how, how did that make you feel when you saw those numbers? Amazing, really. I, I was amazed at the 15,000 until you spotted that uh, we had an additional 10,000 that we'd forgotten about as well. So, yeah, I mean, we, we don't do it for, for that, do we? But it is, um, you know, these we said every week that these are selfish ones that, for us to get better and chat to interesting people so that, that people joining us on that journey, that learning journey, uh, is, is awesome. So, yeah, thanks to everyone listening in. You know, give us some feedback and uh, rate the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it and uh, give us some ideas for, for next season. Yes. Um, one more episode to come in, uh, in season three. Then Matt and I will take a short break, um, let you guys catch up with some of the episodes because they have come thick and fast uh, and then we'll be back to it. But without further ado, let's, uh, let's go and listen to Ben Bartlett. Um, he did drop a, is it a world exclusive, he said in there, about his book? <laughs> I think so. Yeah. I think we've got a world exclusive. Ben, ben let, let slip that he's, uh, he has a book coming out later in the year. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Go and follow Ben on, on social media just to, to keep up to date with uh, when, that, when that comes around. I'm sure you won't be disappointed. Um, but yeah, enjoy this conversation. I know Matt and I did. It's Ben Bartlett, head of coaching at Fulham. This evening, Matt and I are joined by Ben Bartlett. Good evening, Ben. Hello, Brad. How are you doing? Good to see you. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, good to good to have you on, mate. Looking forward to to picking your brains and uh, I guess catching up as well. It's been a couple of years since you and I have crossed paths, and I'm not sure when the last time you and Matt saw each other. But before we before we dig down into the juicy bits of coaching and coach development and and all all things football. Um, Let's ask you to give us a quick rundown of your coaching career or your life in football in no more than 30 seconds. Um, and then we'll, uh, we'll dig down into some of those bits that you have 
found to be quite uh, historical in your journey. So I'll, I'll pass over to you, mate. 30 seconds. See what you got. Um, yeah, I've been fortunate. I've 25 years now as a coach and, and developer. Um, work, spent 10 years at Colchester United early after I finished playing at the same club. Spent a couple of years at Chelsea and then probably most significantly 12 years at the Football Association and I guess sort of saw the inception of the Youth Award and a lot of the changes that sort of occurred in coaching player development, not only driven by the FA, but largely with some big focus on the FA that have hopefully made some positive contributions to some of the positive steps that English football has made in the sort of last 15, 20 years. And then most recently, the last just over two years as head of coaching at Fulham, so back in a club environment and just, I guess, trying to a lot of those ideas that we sort of tried to influence nationally just going back into focusing in a more concentrated environment at a club that's got a good history of developing players so really enjoying it and uh, yeah you know I've been very privileged to work for as long as I have so long may it continue. So what what was your first introduction to coaching was that something that was on your agenda from a young age or is it something that sort of came to fruition after your playing career or um, how, how did you go about that transition into coaching? I got released from Colchester uh, as, as a schoolboy, didn't become a scholar, um, and started doing some community coaching. Football in the community had just sort of become a thing then, so sort of primary school coaching, holiday clubs, social inclusion work, women's and girls programme, and then started to coach in the centre of excellence as well. And I guess I was fortunate in that it was around some really good people who've gone on and had really good careers, and probably like that sort of close-knit at a club that's the size of Colchester, probably some of my lifelong friends are people that I worked with in those early years. Um, and I guess you probably learnt, not that I'm not learning anymore, but you definitely learnt loads of stuff by having 30 kids on a playground in the rain. And if you can learn to control that, then everything after that isn't necessarily easy, but nothing's wholly challenging. Was that something you wanted to get straight into after not getting the schoolboy? Or was it, you know, are you just wanting to stay involved in football or, or did you think coaching's for me? Yeah, I think it was more the second one. It's kind of like, if I'm not going to be good enough to play, I was playing semi-professional football as well. And, sort of looking around and go, what will I do? Had opportunity to go to university, but wasn't really hugely invested in sort of formal education. Um, so yeah, sort of started coaching part-time whilst doing a little bit of work. Managed to get a full-time work at football in the community. And you were sort of in those days coaching 50, 60, 70 hours a week, doing centre of excellence in the evening. And you kind of do breakfast club, PPPA, PPA during school time, after school club, maybe a sports centre session. And by the time you got to your centre of excellence session, you were absolutely on your knees. <laughs> but, you know, I suppose the way that the industry has exploded in the sort of last 10, 15 years, you're fortunate in the sense that whilst you got to a Sunday and you were exhausted, you've got loads and loads of opportunity to practice coaching in loads and loads of different contexts. So loads of different types of kids. And I suppose some of the things that you hope you think about in a slightly more sophisticated way now than you did then, you were definitely learning on the job and picking up stuff that's definitely helped me in good stead moving forward. Do you think that variety helps shape you as well? Uh, without, without a doubt, yeah. And I suppose you'd prob I'd probably like to think of myself as being someone that likes to help people and probably gets a lot of sort of reward and intrinsic drive from helping people. Um, I kind of remember a time going out, we used to run like street ball leagues that in some of the like the tough, tougher areas we'd have money, like grants from the council and stuff. And I remember sort of a moment that clicked, I used to go out to a, a place uh, in Clacton called Jaywick, which is like amongst the top 10 sort of deprived areas in the country, certainly was at the time. And then I used to run like a street ball league on a Friday night and the kids would just come out of the houses and you'd have like 40, 50 kids playing five a side of an evening. 
And I remember one night they managed to get the keys to my car and just moved it, and moved it across the car park. And it was almost like this message that we accept you, but don't forget this is our patch. Uh, whereas other people's cars might have not come back again. They just moved it across the car park. And that was kind of like a recognition that you'd been going there that long. They obviously derived enough enjoyment from what you gave them to kind of make you think, yeah, this is having a little bit of a difference. Mm. And then I guess the benefit from that is like just from that one particular street ball league, like World, World Cup players come out of that programme. Um, and we didn't know that player was a World Cup programme when they're playing at the Street Ball League, but they get access to Centre of Excellence programmes as a consequence, play international football, play Champions League football. And I guess that's kind of like you sort of saw the stuff that came out of the out of the, um, out of the Euros, like the players, where they started from, where they've got to and going back through the history. And I guess probably every player has started playing in somebody's school team or in somebody's community field and someone got yeah. through um, and just recognising the value of that and not only getting caught up in, you know, academy football, first team football, et cetera, et cetera, and just recognising the support and experience and what it brings to people. How did you find that experience with the street ball league when you when you first started? Was that something that you were quite comfortable in or is that outside your comfort zone? It, it was actually really relaxing in the sense that after you'd organised the teams and as it went on, the kids organised the teams, the local constabulary would come down and they would almost just be using it as an opportunity to build relationships, but also to check that the ones that they knew might be causing mischief if they weren't at football or at football, so they could go and have a cup of coffee. Um, but that, that was probably more one of the relaxing ones in the sense that you could literally just set it up, throw a ball in and let them play. And I know that yeah. kind of like jump us to the goalposts thing has probably become a little bit cliched in the last sort of 10, 15 years, almost like a, a throwback. If we went back to that, the world would be a better place. But you definitely do see benefit. And the police were always quite good in terms of like running it between sort of like seven and nine o'clock at night, which meant that by the time the local Herberts had gone home and had a shower, it was too late to go and cause any mischief. So I used to sort of track the crime statistics and even though you could never directly attribute it to that particular programme, you ended up seeing that on certain nights of the week, youth nuisance dropped as a consequence of the fact that they were running around and playing football for a couple of hours, which, yeah, if, that, if that's a positive outcome on its own, great but just being able to stand and watch 40 50 sometimes 60 70 kids just converge on one place and play football in a relatively organized fashion compete with each other but stay relatively friendly was just a really motivating bit to be around how, how did you find then the tradition transition from that sort of stuff into the center of excellence because obviously there's a big jump isn't there what how did you find that as a, as a coach and, and was that something that you were was it, did it take time to get, to get used to working in, in the centre of excellence, particularly having been through it yourself? You know, how did you feel on a personal level delivering there? And, and also, how was it from a coaching point of view? Yeah, probably always had a bit of a kind of imposter syndrome of never really feeling like I'm good enough for the jobs that you've got. And certainly when you rocked up for centre of excellence and there were coaches there that had coached me that you know, had, had a profile, you know, like the Steve Foley's of the world, you, you sort of look back and, you know, you walk in feeling incredibly nervous every single session as if you didn't deserve to be there. And I guess probably once you got past that, it became relatively comfortable. And over time, again, there was, sort of, in those days, I think it was three full-time staff. It was Mickey Cook, who was the head of, like, the head of the Centre of Excellence, head of youth, as it was called then, Jeff Harrop, who was the Centre of Excellence manager, and a guy called Adrian Webster, who looked after recruitment. That was, that was pretty much the full-time staff. You probably then had about, I don't know, 10 or 12 part-time coaching staff and used to go to like the CPD events that used to, used to happen at Kiel, which just used to be a weekend away. 
and mm. like the camaraderie that it generated amongst the coach. And I'm not saying you can't create that now in a category one academy where you've got 40, 50, 60, 70 staff, but it was definitely easier. Like I said earlier, you sort of generated a lot of long-term friendships, people that you're still in touch with from 20, 25 years ago who you built a real strong rapport with just because the amount of time that you spent driving minibuses going up and down the country to various tournaments and games. So, yeah, no, but I always found the, the, the step into anything new quite challenging, partly because I sort of, sort of look over my shoulder and say, should I be here? Am I good enough for this? And I guess once you sort of show you've got some value to add, you sort of relax a little bit and hopefully have some value. I was going to ask you that. Is that something you still get now? Because you are, like, humility, I think, is a, is a strong value of yours, I would guess. You know, when I speak to you, um, whatever context we're in, you know, very humble, but also talk about learning and, and very open to say, I don't have all the answers. I'm still learning and looking and questioning things. Is that something that you still struggle with, you know, do you, that imposter thing, or is that something that's faded away over time? Yeah, no, I, I, I probably suffer less the consequences of anxiety and I'll probably be able to get better at being able to manage it, but still, still feel it. I wouldn't say I feel it daily, but when anything mm. new comes around, and in some senses it's the, the sort of sleeplessness that it can bring and the anxiety that it can bring probably aren't good consequences, but it's good. I guess it makes you recognise that it's important that you do good, that you feel as if you under pressure to perform to make sure that you're offering people the value that I guess you probably... When you look back, some of the people that I was fortunate to be influenced by, you're kind of like recognising the impact that they had on you and then feeling a degree of pressure to say, I need to be making sure I'm offering value to this, yeah. under, to this under-16s coach, to whoever it is that you spend time working with. And I guess beyond all the sort of, I suppose, hurrah that goes on around football, in the end, it is just a game and we are just human beings. It's supposed to be for fun and I think sometimes that can sort of get caught up in the circus. I was going to say, because the, the opposite of that is quite a dangerous place, isn't it? If you just walk into every environment thinking, well, I'm, I definitely am good enough to be here. That's probably where the learning stops, doesn't it? Agreed, yeah. And I, yeah, I don't know that I'd like to be like that. I'd probably like to be like that for a day just to see what it feels like. <laughs> yeah, let me know how it feels. Yeah, that feels good. I want to be like that or, or no, I don't. Um, and actually, whether the people that are actually like that whether it's a mask or whether it's just yeah. a genuine sort of belief and confidence in himself that is just unshakable. Yeah. Talk, talk us through then your transition into the FA. You mentioned that was quite a long, um, you know, period of time for you. What, how did you get into the FA and what, what sort of roles did you start off in? Yeah, it was, it, it was, I suppose probably over time, if, if I look back, I was probably quite seduced by the sort of FA tutor of the past. Uh, and the sort of the role that they'd had, the perceived uh, impact that they could have on a number of people. Um, and in some senses, that probably, that was an attractive thing. The fact that rather than only coaching a team of 16 players, you could affect 16 coaches that were affecting 16 players. Yeah. Almost just have a, a multiple effect on, on the possible impact that you could have. And probably looking back, didn't really know what we were getting into to be brutally honest but what was sold was kind of like this transition from the traditional way of coach education being sort of the sort of coaching certificate or level two as it is now the sort of uh, b license as it is now um which were not a criticism it was just of that particular time but were very kind of curriculum heavy um sort of 
pedant coach who's in charge that drives everything and if the coach gets their moment right then they're a good coach without really a significant focus on actually looking at what the players were doing it was more about what the coach did in that 45 minutes and I guess the first job was a regional coach when the youth award and the skills program were first introduced which is almost just to try and not lose that just try and shift towards an approach to coaching that's just more responsive to the people that are in your care and perhaps less about the coach being king and more about the response to the player being the center point of our thinking um, and I guess over time that collected some legs um, we sort of look back sort of vision of someone like Trevor Brookin um, who by his own probably by his own approach was incredibly humble and when you look back the people that have openly sort of stated the things that they've done for English football he's never one that, that has done that he's always kind of yeah. just gone and a lot of the battles that you had to fight in the early years uh, amongst a lot of the authorities were significant um, and I guess the sort of youth award work skills program etc etc sort of transitioned into what became the DNA and I then spent some time working as part of the um, professional game coach educator program where we would go into professional football clubs and work with the coaches um, which was hugely challenging in the first instance the clubs were incredibly skeptical in some cases cynical about the program uh, and not not without good reason because there there is healthy skepticism sometimes uh, I guess kind of historical cynicism it's just a reflection of the way that the associations had behaved towards them or to their clubs historically. Um, what was really powerful about that is that over time, when you built relationships with people and the programme demonstrated that it could add value, it really started to show the way in which coaching could function and certainly the way that coach education could function. Coaches hopefully started to relax a little bit more in the presence of their formal education and just responded a little bit more to the players rather than felt as if I've got to put this on in a particular way. Um, and I suppose probably like from a personal perspective one of my probably greatest senses of satisfaction was the changes that we made to the way that qualifications were assessed which was less about the kind of you've got your 25 minutes to go from a technique practice into a skill into a small-sided game on running with the ball which have been prescribed by the coach educator and more a process of the coaches identifying what is important to them and then building a program of assessment that responded to them which yeah I don't know that it was groundbreaking in in sort of the way that education has functioned but it was relatively um, novel and relatively innovative certainly in the coach education context. Yeah, there was definitely a noticeable shift I think Ben because Matt and I were part of an A licensed cohort which you delivered on and I think we were the last group Matt to go through the quote-unquote old assessment way of doing things yeah. where it was like a pass or fail on a certain day um, however, the, the the course content itself, I think, was a lot closer towards sort of what you might call the new way of delivery and the, the maybe it gets termed the advanced youth award style, doesn't it? But there was definitely similarities between that and the A license. And one of the things I've, I'm looking at a picture here because I took a picture on the day. Um, you put something on a board around coach interventions. And I don't know if you remember it. And there was like six different challenges that you'd set us as coaches and it was around, so like the first one was 15 seconds to tell the players. Um, two minutes, ask questions, have them talking more than you. And, and that was quite eye-opening for me. This was challenges that were being set to us as coaches rather than this is how it's delivered. If you copy this and do it on the day, you'll probably pass. And it, it, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but it did feel like a, a real shift towards um, 
and more coach center focused and, and allowing different styles because again, sort of some of these would fit more naturally to my coaching philosophies or beliefs or what I feel comfortable with compared to others. And yeah, I thought I'd, I'd just bring that up because it definitely did feel like a shift. And uh, I think Matt and I certainly benefited from that. Would you agree, Matt? That was. Yeah. I'm Ben's on it. So I have to say, yeah. Don't I? So, no, I, <laughs> I mean, we, what, what I noticed definitely from, from that uh, a license was that period of time and again i'm not speaking disrespectfully but you your delivery definitely felt like it was different to the rest of of the delivery of the course for example so like it almost felt like yeah that was you would you, if you had to put them into boxes and i know they're not two separate things but people would go well that's a that's a youth award type delivery. The rest of it was a A license and inverted commas delivery. Um, so I, I, I wanted to ask you how, how you felt about that, because I know when you deliver on, on courses, this is, you know, there's a lot of staff, isn't there, that are involved in the courses. And, you know, if the minority is delivering in one way and the majority is delivering another way, and I know it was the start of this shift towards a more competency-based individual development plan way forward how how did you feel delivering like that in that environment and you know what what were your challenges yeah it was, it was hard uh, i still remember like one of the first times i delivered that sort of session on an a license and quite a few of the fa tutors sort of cornered me and said that's 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 a youth award session <laughs> we, we need that's a tuesday session we need to see what you deliver a friday session and just ask them the question well, what day is it today and it happens on tuesday so <laughs> And kind of one of the challenges, right? It's like sort of like the six interventions that sort of leads to that. Kind of like, like a constraints-led approach to coaching should be the constraints-led approach to coach development. And constraints are just they are they are by definition limitations, but they're also opportunities. Which I guess Lee, Lee kind of alluded to the fact that some of those things were more natural to him because of his own beliefs. But that doesn't mean that he because he believes in the way that I might see the world that that's the only way that he should coach because inevitably he will have players in his team that will respond better to other approaches. It might mean that Lee needs to more consciously practice some of the things that aren't perhaps natural, that aren't well, that he's not well practiced in, because he's going to need them. And I guess that's the kind of nature of coaching, which is if I blindly and belligerently just impose my beliefs upon somebody else, I don't know that that's particularly helpful. And I'm not suggesting that that's what coach education did do or is doing. But if you make someone do what you want them to do, that probably isn't that helpful unless you want to live in a totalitarian state, which I'm suggesting we probably don't. So, um, yes, I guess along the windy way of getting to the answer, it was hard. But I guess over time, it became less difficult and it almost just became, this is just another way of delivering. And fundamentally, yeah. each coach decides what's important in their context. And not that they should need to justify it, but if they can explain why they're doing what they're doing, outside the realms of what's kind of safeguarding for poor practice, there isn't bad practice. There's just decisions that the coach makes in any given day based upon the things that are in their thinking. And the more we can bring their thinking to the surface, to the things that are important to the more we can bring those things to the surface to build self-awareness in all of us, the better chance we've got of being able to respond to people rather than people feeling as if oh, I've got to pull my socks up and pull my socks up, tuck my shirt in, and make sure I stop it after five minutes to show that I'm in control. Um, perhaps yeah, less of the 
that's a, that's a time it's a problem. I guess probably final bit to add would, I suppose like the sort of level two and B license, and it, and it has it has and continues in some senses to be maligned, um, which I guess is just another view is that we drew the youth award and the traditional qualification together, because almost by having two separate qualifications, you almost continue to perpetuate the idea that this is what you do on the B license and this is what you do on the youth award rather than this is just coaching. And the stuff that was in the youth award, I understand why it was packaged and sold and, and promoted in that way. But that isn't just good youth coaching, that's just good coaching for human beings, whether you're 25, five or 55. It's just understand who the human beings are and respond to them as best as you can within your own skill set. And can I ask, is there any experiences, positive or negative, or people that have influenced or shaped your beliefs on, on coaching and your sort of coaching style over the over the years you've been in around football? Um, probably the notable experience was when I was doing my A licence. Um, and I remember delivering the, the second session was like the 11 versus 11. And I think it was a defending topic. So the first session did was a phase of play, which was an attacking topic. Second session was a defending topic. I remember it was at, um, it was at Lillishaw and you had like four different shooters in different places. Um, and I was fortunate in the sense that Kenny Swain, who was my sort of tutor, the person that was responsible for signing me off, had been hugely supportive, encouraging, really positive, critiqued your work and gave you good feedback, but was always largely positive. But I remember when I was delivering my last session, Kenny happened to be at the far end of the pitch from where I was coaching and another FA tutor was in my eye line. And I started to I stopped the session and started to coach in a particular point in the traditional sort of FA education way. I remember this, this other tutor was in my eye line and he just stood there shaking his head while I was trying to make my point. And you're kind of like, in your mind, you're like going, you know, you're like, am I wrong? Is, is this right? <laughs> and the players seem to be sort of responding relatively positively. And you kind of like get, get through it and get to the end of it and fortunate to pass. And that was in the days where kind of like 20% passed and you came out like doing cartwheels and everybody else was sat in the bar moping, which again, was a particularly helpful process. But in that moment, at the end, you're almost like, I never want to make anybody feel like that in that moment, the way that I felt then, where you're kind of like going, these two years of work and all of my commitment to coaching is almost at risk of crumbling in this moment, um, which I would never want anybody's learning, anybody within their learning to feel like that at a moment of perceived pressure. Um, so that, that was probably a significant moment. The sort of people that have had an impact on me over the sort of long term, like John Allpress, I was really fortunate that geographically when we were sort of working for the FA that he was near to where we deliver in, he was, he was sort of experimenting with stuff, fiddling about with stuff. She just got to spend quite a lot of time with him. Um, and again, this, the sort of formal, when he would stand up in front of 90 or hundred people, people would often be underwhelmed, but that, he never saw value in that. And he was always much more subtle in the way that he did his work about giving people opportunity about how he supported people through stuff. And a lot of the subtlety, that he demonstrated is something that you can, you, you know, you'll never be, he's the master, you will never get it as good as him, but you're always kind of aspiring to that, people being able to take responsibility, them at the end of the experience knowing and feeling as if it was them that did it rather than it was the coach educator that did it for them. Mm. Um, and then probably for like, like a per, on a personal level, a guy called Dimitri Halako, who's the 23s coach at West Ham now, who previously worked at Norwich, Leicester, who I worked with at Colchester. We both started out on a community coaching program together we shared a house together we've known each other he's probably my oldest friend in football um but someone that you'd still speak to on a weekly basis um has been through all the pain with you has been through whatever highs there have been with you and he's certainly someone that 
whether or not he would directly recognize that he's sort of mentoring or supporting you or whether he just would assume that he's your friend there's definitely you know, i'm sure you've all got those kind of people that just day to day that when it's crap you pick up the phone and it feels a little less crap than it did and when it's good <laughs> share that with somebody they make you feel as if you know you've put a lot of work and effort in and even though coaching is quite a social process being a coach sometimes is quite a lonely place because you sort of bear a lot of everybody else's burdens which is a great thing because you get a deeper understanding of people, but at times it can be lonely. Seven people that you can call on like that is yeah, invaluable. The, um, just going back to the, the A-Lasic bit, and you mentioned there about not feeling the way you were made to have felt. The, the day you delivered on that A-Lasic, Lee and I caught up in the evening in, with a few drinks, and we were like, that today was, was why we came on the A-Lasic, like that, like Lee said at the start. It, it just aligned to what we saw, the way we see the world and, and the way we wanted to coach. And, you know, I've got to be honest, at that point, before that, that day, we, we were struggling on there because it was so different to how we wanted to be and how we wanted to coach. And we'd actually found it quite difficult. And that, that day when you delivered, it was like, yeah, that's, this is it. This is, this is how we see coaching and this is how we would behave and be and, curious and all that sort of stuff um so you definitely you know impacted us positively and, and turned that around for us because i remember us talking that evening you know about that day and how um yeah we just it changed our our mindset completely so thank you for that firstly you, the, the point I, the point i was getting to was that that is murky isn't it that, that way of doing it. And like you talked about that subtlety about John, John Allpress and, and the way he, he does things to a point where the people go away thinking that they've done it themselves. To measure that is murky, isn't it? It's, it's really difficult to do. Do, do you think that's, that's why it was so, that's why it took a, a long time to get this, this method in? Because it's really easy to go, do this, do that, do this. And I can measure it because they've done that, they've done this, they've done that. Whereas the way you're talking about us, here's a few interventions, see what works, try this, try this. And the subtlety of it is quite murky and grey, isn't it? And do, you, do you think that's, that's why, why that took so long to you know, get people on board with it? Because it wasn't clear. Or, well, I'm not saying it's not clear, but because it's really hard to, to measure its success. Yeah, 100%. And... I guess there's the sort of, there's the football element of this and there's the sort of wider social cultural aspect of the way that we've all been educated. And I guess the way that many of us have been brought up to think about education, which is teacher stands at the front, learners sit in rows and wait to be taught. You memorize yes. what it is that you've been taught. And if you can regurgitate it, repeat it, write it down and get a grade, then you pass. Uh, and then as a consequence, people either learn to learn like that or, or they didn't, they became really disassociated from their learning and actually didn't feel as if it was a, a, a response to them in any way at all. And I guess in some senses, it was convenient to assess people like that. You've got mm. 24 people on a course, you've got three days to do their assessments, better see what they can show me in 30 minutes rather than see what they can show me in 30 weeks or in 30 years, um, which I guess is whatever anybody understands about learning is probably the emergence of learning, which is evolution and development over time not impact in one single event. Can you even then say that, oh, I've done three years of work with this particular group of players and they've got better. 
can we even still attribute that to us in terms of a measure? Because if they'd have rocked up and played by themselves, they might have been yeah. good. They might have been better. They might not have been. No one will never know. And because this is human development, you can't just run like a can't run a separate group, can you? Can't run a control group who get this and another group that get that because there's so many of the other social and cultural impacts like parents, where they go to school, etc., 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 which will impact upon that. And I think part of the problem is that we've become really in, in the technological age, we've become really focused upon data, upon numbers, upon kind yeah. of hardware metaphors. Uh, this is how I'm wired. This is how this person's computer works, um, and we're not—we're not computers. We were learning long before the technological age. We've evolved over—I don't know—probably millions or billions of years. So, I think we just have to be really careful about some of that stuff. Um, but I guess I probably speak from a coaching and a development perspective, not from a leadership perspective. Where if you're spending half a million pound on X you probably need to be to, to generate or at least be, be able to seem to demonstrate return why we invested half a million pound here's a million pound back in return and i guess i've never been in those type of jobs to need to worry about that and i guess if you could interview people like that they might come with a different perspective um hopefully over time you just allow people to do what they need to do relative to their context and i appreciate you saying like it, it means a significant deal to hear people like you guys of your experience say that those moments on those courses were what you came on the course for. I still think that we could have been better at bringing the things that you think are important to the surface before you even embark on that learning. And then as a consequence, we might consciously give you not more of me per se, but more of that type of work, but also balance it and counter it by saying, yeah, yeah, this is great that you believe this and this stuff helps, but here's another way of thinking about it, that people that you come into contact with might value more than the things that you currently value. I think the problem with the courses is you come on it and you, 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 you currently believe this, you care about this and your experience of these. Somebody else comes on the course with a completely different set of characteristics. And guess what? They just get pumped full of the same stuff. So people going away from that same course going, and by the session's hopeless. And, and, and that's fine. It probably was. And I guess that's pro probably the, the brilliance of what we want, which is probably not every single coach to be like Matt Craddock or Lee Garlic or Ben Bartlett, but every single coach just to be a better version of themselves which I know is like a proper tired cliche nowadays but people just to understand themselves and the demise of their context and respond to it relentlessly and I wanted to pick your brains a little bit on Matt alluded to there the I guess a games or a constraints based way of, of working with players can be murky messy untidy what was the word the other week dynamic was a word wasn't it it's not chaotic dynamic um uh, and I guess one thing that struck me about seeing you work was how you helped provide some clarity or, or, or reference points for the players within that murkiness. Um, and, and one of the, the use of language was really powerful for me. And, and the one thing I've still got noted down here was around a bowl, a box and a basin. I don't know if you remember that you were talking about. Can you tell us a little bit, not necessarily about those three, but the importance of use of language, memorable, um, almost cheat sheets or reference points for players so that they can still find success in that sort of murky waters of the messy coaching that we're, we're trying to put together. Oh, the bowl, the box and the basin. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a throwback to a previous life. And I'm <laughs> astounded that you, that, that you remember it and that you got it noted down. So again, <laughs> um, I suppose that was, I go back to my time at, um, 
you know, one of the clubs that I worked at where I, I, we, we, I suppose like everybody, you devise a vision. This is what we're aiming for, which is being a top four club with players that had the four corner qualities to be able to compete internationally. Um, and then the playing philosophy kind of comes as a consequence of what you're aiming at. So if you've got, if you want players that have got the four corner capacity to compete internationally, your football program needs to, in some way, set them up for that. So I suppose fundamentally decide what's important and aim at it. And then every single behaviour as a consequence should probably be a response to that. So the bowl, the box and the basin were just different ways which we would set our teams out to play out from the back. Um, the bowl was kind of the traditional dish shape that you would have with the back four, where if the pitch was separated into traditional thirds, the fullbacks would probably be on the deepest third line. The centre-backs would probably be on the edge of the box. Um, the box was all four players drop within the depth of the box, which was, this was in times before the ball could be played inside the box from a goal kick. So from a goal kick, the ball would need to leave the box before it could be kicked by anybody else. So your centre-half would typically come down the side of the box towards the touchline. Fullbacks would come deep within the depth of the box, which perhaps a bit controversial, but would have a tendency to encourage the opposition's press higher up the pitch which might then create a space to play between them. And the third example was the basin, which is where the centre-backs would probably be anywhere between touchline and the edge of the box. And the full-backs would go higher, probably up towards where the halfway line is, which if you're playing with a 4-3-3 or a 4-4-2, your wider midfielders would then come inside as a consequence of your full-backs being higher. And I guess to try and get to your point, which was they were just kind of three relatively loose principles that the players could apply but that meant it wasn't tight patterns that said fullbacks always go here. Because I guess if you're going to play against a high pressing team, like in their day, like the sort of the Dutch or, or, or the, the Spanish, you might want to encourage them onto you sometimes to create space to play between them. Because if you keep your players from the penalty box line higher, if their deepest player is on the halfway line, there ain't a lot of space to play between when someone's pressing the life out of you. So they may come deeper. At times, the fullbacks may go higher, knowing they'll have a knock-on effect to the goalkeeper, perhaps playing clipped passes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, so I guess we want players to respond in the moment, but then I guess like you alluded to, that can be chaotic, which is everybody just does what they want. So it's kind of like what you're aiming at, what's your plan philosophy as a consequence, and what pieces hold that together that are relatively, I guess, simple or straightforward for players to understand and then to apply based upon the situation and. That probably carries into, I suppose, my current job. One of the things that we've tried to do, particularly within the PDP, is to be less focused on the opposition player 3-5-2, so we're going to play like this, and just being more long-term developmental to say, if a team presses with two, these might be some of the solutions. If a team presses with three, these might be some of the solutions. If a team presses with four, these might be some of the solutions. If we're building with a three, these might be some of the solutions. If we're building with a four, so it isn't, we're playing Chelsea today, Chelsea play like this, we better do that. It's, these are some solutions that the players are learning, which they can respond with, they can adapt as a consequence of whatever the opposition do, which hopefully mean the players aren't waiting for the coach, to, sorry, for the coach to solve the problem with as much as we can armed them with some possible solutions that maybe they can use in the moment. Yeah, and that, that was one of the biggest things I, I took from seeing you work was around on that A licence, some, some of the coaches, it was... I will give you the knowledge or the answer to the players, whereas your way of working was, I have some answers and I'm going to try and put the players 
in scenarios where they have to try and meet me there rather than just give it to them. Um, and I, that was really powerful. And I, and I think going on to the, the challenges and the constraints and all that kind of stuff that you, you opened my eyes to in more around one, I'll give, I'll, I have to credit you with this one because I use it a lot. The one or four or more touches thing is incredible. Like up until it sounds so simple, but it's, it's, it's decision-making, isn't it? So again, that, that way of coaching around, I know what I want the players to achieve, but I'm not just going to impart that knowledge on them. I'm going to try and entice them to get there themselves or, or think about it. And t- tell us more about that, because I know that's listening to you speak and, and seeing you work, interventions, challenges, constraints, however we want to call it, is is something that you're, you're um, don't not put words in your mouth, but you're, you're passionate about or you really see high value in. So just, just tell us, first of all, how do you, how much effort goes into something as simple as one touch or four more touches? And why can't people like me and Matt think of that with our players? <laughs> again, again, thank you. Um, yeah, I guess the, um, I suppose specifically the one or four or more touch, and then I'll probably speak a bit more broadly. So I'll start narrow and go broader. Um, I guess like you kind of alluded to, if, if the players or the coaches that we're working with are dependent upon my knowledge, they'll always be limited by my knowledge. Um, and they'll also be limited by my, my own constraints of the way that I would look at the game. Um, I guess one or four or more touches was kind of like a, a response in the moment to the kind of stay on the ball bit, where people would say everybody just have the ball and dribble all of the time, which, yeah, um, I think that's important that we get the kids to stay on the ball. But staying on the ball is a, is a decision. And at times, one person staying on the ball may actually free somebody else up or somebody else playing quickly may free somebody else up to be able to stay on the ball for longer. So it isn't just about what I do, it's about the knock-on effect that I have on other, on other people. Um, and some people would say, well, that's ridiculous because if two or three touches is the right thing to do, I should take two or three touches. And yeah, I'm not saying they're wrong, but again, when you remove certain choices, you do enable people to practice stuff that they might not practice if two or three touch was on the table. And just through some of that stuff, you just observe and keep it going. It's basic like notation analysis, how many times do we get four or more touches? And if you don't play those conditions, you get 50% less four or more touches than if you do play those conditions. So I guess you're still leaving the players with an opportunity and a decision to make, but you're also ensuring that you increase the amount of opportunity the players get to dribble by removing certain options. Um, but what I'm really careful to do is to leave them with only one option. So I would never say you must have four or more touches. It would be very unlikely that I would say that because the risk is, is you just remove other options for them. So you can have one touch, which means spotless around you go quick or stand it for longer. Um, hopefully with the idea that people find solutions that perhaps they haven't already got in their armory. Um, I probably started by suggesting that one or four or more touch was kind of a response to the stay on the ball, like just all of the time, as opposed to it being a decision. And then probably just encourage people to consider that the conditions or the constraints that they may impose upon sessions or agree with the players will hopefully be a response to the things that are important to them. So um, I don't know. If, if one of your beliefs is, is that you want you want play to be exciting, you want your team to look exciting, you want your players to feel freedom and the ability to excite the opposition, you might pick conditions like 
stay on the ball when it's the right thing to do, play one or four or more touches. Um, if forward runs is important to you, you might just encourage people to break, spot the times to break beyond. If you score, if a midfielder scores from a run from deep, you get three goals for it. So the things that you're, cons you're consequently rewarding or drawing people's attention towards are the things that are important to you. In my current role, one of the things that certainly a lot of our coaches have been really keen to promote is kind of like, I suppose like a lot of clubs are, a lot of teams are high pressing, be aggressive, be difficult to be. We just spend quite a bit of time coming up with games, practices, competitions, tournaments, challenges on game days when we're playing against opposition that enable some of those things to come out. So keep a clean sheet for a period or keep as clean as possible a sheet as you can. Um, score within one minute of conceding, you get two goals. We've had tendencies, certainly with some of the younger age groups, as you guys probably recognise, is that you can concede one and you'll concede two, three, four, and all of a sudden the kids' heads have fallen off because you've conceded three or four goals in a five-minute spell. If you can score one back within a minute of conceding, it's worth double goals. So it almost just respond positively to going behind. Um, one of our teams has been really good at having possession high up the pitch, but not necessarily turning it into chances. So one of the things that developed as a consequence of that was games like if you can keep the ball in the opposition's half for 25 seconds or more and score, it equals three goals. So it says, get up the pitch, get well positioned, look after the ball, but make sure that you turn it into something that has a, probably a goal at the end of it. But then also as a consequence of that, the counter-pressing piece becomes really important, which is if you're keeping it up the pitch and you turn it over, you're probably well positioned to win it back again. So the next layer that we put into a game like that would be if you lose it, but you can win it back in the half that you lost it in, your second timer stays where it is. So you got to 17, you turn it over in the opposition's half. If you can win it back before they enter your half, you carry on on 17. So it kind of says that counter-pressing mentality, we've lost it, we're going back after it again, just leads people towards recognising the things that are important. And just in, we gen, genuinely encourage people to experiment with it, try different stuff, because one or four a touch or more has also, as much as you loved it, has been widely maligned by people. And I guess that's, they're not wrong, by the way. It might be an absolute bomb scare. And I remember doing it similarly on an advanced youth award course later, and two coaches come up to me and like, they have their notepads with them, like, we're waiting for you to do something. You haven't done anything. You're supposed to be coaching. And I was like, stop, you stop watching me, watch the players. Because the problem is, is it puts too much time with the crown on the coach's head and not the crown on the player's head. Football is a game for players, played by players. Let's look at the players and stop looking at the coaches. Uh, and as a consequence, we should put whatever we put into a practice or into a game and then watch the players. Because what the players do is probably a consequence of the quality of the session. And not be, if, if we've got a good relationship with the players and if the players trust us, they'll allow us, they'll allow us a bomb scare, they'll allow us stuff that's wrong. And actually sometimes their input probably makes it better. We can say, well, go on, then what would you do to make it better? We would do this. And all of a sudden there's an ownership piece for them around that particular practice. That's right. That, that that one of the things that I think uh, reward, restrict, relate was that the other one? Yeah, yeah that that was one thing I, I I really liked. And the the reward thing for me, I think, is is brilliant. I, I love it because what you what you do is, like you said, you give them options and you let them make their decision. So you're almost setting up a a game with some decisions for them to make, and then you're just sitting back and watching their decision making. Uh, and then you can dip in and dip out to help 
certain people or units or the team with, with their decision-making. That for me was like massive. And, and the, the reward thing particularly, and that like that stuff you're talking there about, you know, if you can keep it up there for 25 passes and whatever, you know, that, that is the sort of stuff that, I, you know, that's the way I work. That's the sort of stuff that I, I really like to hear. And I think that is, that is putting the crown on the players, isn't it? That's how we do it, by giving them a framework to work within and then watching them. And then we're practising the game. We're not just practising an arbitrary theme like running the yeah. ball. Because the team that's keeping the ball high up the pitch are being defended by a team that are defending in what people might call a low block now. So yeah. One team defending near their goal while another team's practising plan high up the pitch. The defenders or the deeper players for the team that have got possession will be practising playing into the opposition's half. Your advanced players are going to be trying to utilise space where there isn't a lot of space between the lines. So there isn't loads of space behind the deep line defence to get into. Um, you're probably going to have touch and release skills in tight areas because people are compacted into one half of the pitch for a relatively sustained period of time. And I guess it's probably one of the big bits that I've tried to think about and continue to try to think about is Monday isn't running with the ball, Tuesday isn't pressing from the front, Tuesday is we're playing football the individual needs are these and we're going to stitch those things together as well as we can within our own capabilities. Um, and yeah, whether we choose to restrict, relate or reward for everybody, for a team, for an individual, I guess that's just the subtlety of that work and try not to feel as if I've got to renounce it to everybody that that's what I'm doing rather than just help the players go through that process. And increasingly, I don't, I don't know that it's changed. I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe it has Young people don't really like too much of the being stopped in public and even sometimes being praised in front of their mates, let alone being criticised in front of their mates. The individual stuff is so much more powerful. My personal experience of what it's worth is the more individual interventions are, the more likely you are to get something back from them. It becomes more of a conversation, more of a here comes the coach. Oh, no, I hope it's not me getting criticised this time. Um, and, yeah, I, I, I guess it's just sort of attuning people's attention to different things rather than the coach with the whistle that is is in charge. And I guess coach education and sort of symposiums, conferences, whatever, have probably perpetuated a lot of that, which is rock up at 10.30, Matt Craddock is going to be delivering the exemplar session on the, the Bolt and Wanderers way, which, yeah, I'm not saying we don't take anything from that, but everybody... Unless you live in Bolton and you understand Bolton Wanderers, I don't know what you're taking from it. Other than that's important to Bolton, great. That might be interesting. And you said um, around your <clears throat> the use of um, constraints or challenges in the planning process. Where does that fit in, and how much energy or time do you give to the language of your interventions or your challenges, as opposed to the practice itself? And do you think maybe? Traditionally, coaches, do they put too much time into what practice is going to be rather than the sort of delivery methods? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think you probably know the answer to that one. Um, and as much as possible, we're just trying to move away from spending hours and hours coming up with the practice because we probably don't want the class to learn the practice. We want the class to learn the game the more the practice looks like the game, probably more they're learning the game than they are the practice. If it's got two goals in it, whatever those goals are, if it's got direction and two teams in it and probably one ball, the 
players haven't got to spend too much time learning the practice because they watch it on the telly every week. They play every time they play football. It's just stuff that they inherently understand. Um, and then as a consequence, we probably free ourselves up more that we haven't got to worry about, I've got to remember what the scoring system is there and you've got to get your abacus out to work out what's going on or you've got to, you've got to control so many different things that actually your, your, your cognitive bandwidth is just taken up by got to deal with this, this and that, which means it's difficult to look at the players, it's difficult to see what the players need and then respond to it. So, yeah, the more simple the practice is, the more the practice looks like the game of football, the more you free yourself to do some of the individual stuff. And I think increasingly, like going back to some of the sort of examples that you spoke about, when you're delivering on a course and you don't know the players particularly well, I would invest an inordinate amount of time, probably too much time, working out what I was going to say, what I understood about the players, trying to find out from the coach who coached those players regularly what those things were, just to try and model in sessions is, is flawed in itself. But so at least if you're going to model anything, you're actually modeling that you're understanding to some level the needs of the players and you're responding with your challenges and your conditions, things that are responding to those players. Increasingly, like in a club environment now, the more you understand the players, the less time you have to think about that because you just have a deep understanding of how that player responds. And some of that almost just becomes second nature. You just like that. I know I wouldn't condition him with a restrict because it's going to tip him over the edge. He doesn't respond to a reward. He just does what he thinks is right in that particular moment. So encourage him, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think increasingly, the more we can invest our time in more deeply understanding the individuals and perhaps again, one of the bits that we try to do at our place is move away from the kind of the player profile of this is a number four. He should be able to play through the lines, break up play, tick how many of those he does, more towards the profile, just being a blank piece of paper. And over time, this is what we come to understand about Lee Garlic. This is where he goes to school. This is what his dad's name is. These are the players that he thinks are, are really good. This is the club that he supports. These are some of the experiences that he's had over time. These are some of the challenges that he's faced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which hopefully just means, A, we build a picture of that player over years that accumulates our understanding. And B, hopefully just becomes a reflection for the coaches of what's gone before, which hopefully means every season they don't, they do start with maybe a new relationship if they've not spent a lot of time with that player. But they've just got all this understanding and intelligence that has come from everybody else's time spent with that player that just informs their thinking. And then we don't start shoehorning players into is he a seven or is he a ten? No, he's Lee, and this is his background. Let's help him. So you you then you've alluded to it there. You moved into a back into a club role. Um, you're in a position where you could influence how things are done and, and all the experiences you've had previously. How how have you found the two? You said it's about two years now. How you found that being back in a club environment and have you? Have you enjoyed that side of things, you know, being back around players and, and working with people on a more consistent basis, both players and coaches? Um, and I guess what what does the future hold for you in, in your current role? Yeah, um, I, I suppose really lucky in the sense that, and I'm sure it's the same at many clubs, but there's just a lot of really good coaches and good human beings that you spend time with on a daily basis. And probably the biggest thing that I've recognised probably in the first six months to a year of this job was whilst the work that we did at the FA was hopefully impactful on many people, it's relatively shallow when you rely upon people coming to St George's Park for 15 days 
or three interactions in a club setting within situ visits to shape their coaching philosophy. You need to be around people in a, in a, in a more concentrated, longer-term way to more deeply understand them, to help them bring to the surface the things that are important to them, to get a more deeper understanding of the things that have influenced them over time to help you in any way you try and work with them. Um, and that's probably been the most, the most powerful bit. Um, and I suppose the, the thing you take the greatest kind of satisfaction from is so many of those coaches, they don't need me or a head of coaching or an academy manager to help them to be good. But what they probably do need is just the environment to free them up a little bit, to take away some of the sort of bureaucracy and the kind of standardised systematic way that perhaps at times we thought we were encouraged to think about coaching, um, to just get some of those things out of their way. And I suppose the same thing that we'd say for the players, right? It's like your best players just need as much as possible the nonsense taken out of their way and just help them to show what they're able to do. The same would be true of the coaches. And if I've played any role, it's probably just been can we just remove some of this clutter and help the coaches just get down to the nuts and bolts of who are these 15 boys? What do they need? How do I respond with them over time? Work with their parents and just help them to fundamentally and principally enjoy their football because they'll keep coming back. And as a consequence, they'll probably get better. But then just to really make the most of the opportunity they've got when they're in an academy team. Who, who removes the nonsense for you then? If that's your responsibility to the coaches who's doing that for you or how do you ensure you keep learning and, and developing in your current role yeah I mean I've, I've been really lucky in the sense that like, sort of Hugh Jennings has been the academy director for a number of years he's hugely experienced and early in the job he asked me what I wanted the job to do we agreed what the job would do and in most senses he just gets out of the way and lets me get on with it um I go to him if I need to tell him something. He comes to me if there's something he needs me to do or to stop doing. Um, and that's always worked for me in the sense that, and I don't mean this like in a kind of conceited way, but I don't think I need managing. I just think I need kind of like support and encouragement at moments. Um, and he, whether that's just the way he works with everybody or that's the way he recognised that he works with me, I suppose just lucky to have some of his experience that just goes, off you go, go and get on with it. Um, and, and I suppose you've been fortunate as well in the kind of, like a lot of the movement in the early part of the EPPP seems to be loosening a little bit. A lot of the kind of constraints that were placed on yeah. people, PMA, this amount of hours, log your session, where's your six weekly review, et cetera, et cetera. And they were done with good intentions because it was to try to shore up some of the kind of gaps that were perceived to be in players' learning programmes up until that point. But I've probably been fortunate that I've gone back into a club setting as kind of like the second or third iteration of EPPP is taking place, which means a lot of the early learnings that perhaps people got bashed over the head a little bit more with than I'm getting bashed over the head with frees you up a little bit more to not feel as if you've got to tick the box and dot the I's and cross the T's, but just work with people. So I've probably been lucky in that sense as well. well. What are the moments that require for you support and encouragement? So what what... What sort of things that, you know, get at you? You know, we talked about quite a few number of, of difficult situations that you were been involved in, you know, throughout your coach education and stuff. What, you know, are they, are they type of moments that you've got internally you just bat off or is that, are they moments that actually you need a bit of support and someone to go, listen, you're doing, you're doing the right thing? 
Um, we need to have a think about that one. Um, I, I suppose I tend to, I think I've got better at it, but I do tend to struggle when this probably sounds just a bit childlike, but when people don't do what they said they were going to do. Um, yeah. It's almost like the kind of definition of integrity, isn't it? Which is we said we were going to do this, let's do it. And I think I can probably, it's the old quote, isn't it? You can probably stand any how or whatever if you understand the why. Um, and I suppose in any setting, if you know why something is the way that it is, I think I'm pretty good at getting on with it. It's when that changes without a lot of consultation. And they're probably the bits that I require the most support with, which is person X said they were going to do this. They haven't done it and they haven't explained why they haven't done it. Well, that seems a bit shit. Can we do something about it? Um, and yeah, again, in, in my, my current setting, I'm probably fortunate in the sense that you can just have those conversations and people will explain what the why is. Um, and I suppose... I saw, like I was saying earlier, I saw um, a previous FA colleague at a, a dinosaur park, ironically, in West Wales last week. <laughs> and he was sort of asking about the, the sort of difference in the change. And I think the thing that's great about being back in the club setting is you see most things coming. Most stuff is front and centre. Uh, at the FA, there it's so big, it's so complex. There's so many committees and steering groups that there's just millions of things going on that just broadside you that you never even knew was a thing. Whereas in a club setting, you see most things for what they are. Like it, don't yeah. like it. That's every environment. There's stuff you like, the stuff you don't like. But you can likely see it and you just get to understand that that's just the way that things function, um, which probably makes that a little bit easier because there's just less things that are going on outside of, not my control, but outside of the focus on coach and player development, um, which I guess is fundamentally what I guess we should, you know, I don't know. Perhaps it's just a naive perspective but if it isn't about the players and their development, and if you're in coach education, if it isn't about the coaches and their development, what are we doing? Hmm. I'm conscious of time, Ben, so we'll start to slowly wrap up. Um, but what, what sort of things do you do to keep yourself on track, to keep yourself learning, to keep yourself, you know, balanced as well? Because you know what, what football's like. I know at, at the FA, though, you know, I know they work a lot of good, a lot of long hours and a lot of travelling, but they're also very good at ensuring you balance your time off and stuff like that. And that's something that when you get into a professional club, that can sometimes be missed. So what, what, what do you do to make sure you keep that balance? And, you know, how do you make sure you keep on learning? Yeah, um, obviously we have like the EHOC programme, which has some benefits to it. Um, Probably the biggest thing, and I, I was fortunate in about January of this year, I got approached by a publisher to write a book, which I've done, which should be out early September. Fingers crossed, all being well. And Brilliant. What was, what was really good about that, I guess like anything, where you try and make sense of why you think what you think, and probably unlike I've done in the last hour, to be able to articulate it in any way that's coherent that other people would... <laughs> A, understand, and then B, see any value in. And it was a really good exercise in the sense that the way that the publisher sort of promoted the book that he wanted, the things that he wanted me to deal with, but that he wanted there to be a relatively strong personal narrative that ran through it, it enabled me the time to be able to look back on things that I've done in the past, things that have happened, reading that I've done, courses that I've been on, people that have influenced me to kind of talk about a constraints-led approach to coaching, but 
and deal with some of the, I guess, underpinning theory because we should do, but not allow it to be dry. And it's almost allowed me the opportunity to reconnect with some of the reading and the research, but attach it to some of my practice and then try and compact it into something that's relatively coherent that somebody might want to pick up and read and maybe take some value from. And yeah, I guess that, that kind of, I suppose, again, it's a bit of an analogy, a bit of an old analogy, but if you want to learn something more deeply, you try and teach it to somebody else. That's yeah. definitely been a really good exercise in sort of drawing that together and has definitely helped me gain greater and deeper personal clarity. Um, and I think what that has also helped me with is, you know, some of the coaches at our place, like me, like all of us, are going through that same journey of trying to make sense of what they're thinking. And at times it's noisy, it's cluttered, it's 85 slides of a presentation. And I think I've got better at being less critical of that fact and just recognise that they're going through the same process that I'm going through, which is I'm doing some stuff, trying to make sense of it. And at times it is noisy, it is cluttered. Mm. And I may need to go through that process to come out with something that appears more refined at the end. If we try and interfere, shortcut, punctuate in some way that process to get to the outcome quicker because we think that might be better, we actually risk impacting upon the learning that that process is going to enable over a period of time. And I guess it's probably how we've tried to you know, embody learning in our environment, which is it isn't the single shot in the arm, top down, pumped people full of this is the philosophy, but just try and make better sense of what you believe, better understand the people in your care and then decide how to behave on any given day to take account of those things. But hmm. Brian Ashton challenged me to to write my stuff down, so I put I put it into a presentation because that's what I like. And uh, I showed it and went through it with him. And then he took out a piece of paper and just went, "There's mine," and he got it all into like three paragraphs, you know. And I was just like, "Right, okay." So he didn't even have to tell me what to do. It was just, "Here's mine. I've I know it so well. It's in these three paragraphs, and yours is in." however many slides so my you know going away i'm thinking right okay that's i gotta chunk it down i obviously don't know it as well you know it's just such a good process to go through when when's the book out then uh it's due to be early september so yeah. fantastic well congratulations that's brilliant thank you yeah hopefully hopefully it'll um yeah if, if only my mum buys it i should make 75p out of the price so, yeah. <laughs> um but what what apart from your book, obviously, what have you consumed recently that um, you know you would recommend others to either listen, watch, or read that has helped you? Doesn't have to be coaching specific. Um, it's, it's a bit dry, and I found it quite hard reading. But Bruner's stuff on um, sort of cognition, uh, it's it's quite old in terms of like when it was written, and it's quite academic in terms of some of its sort of coverage but he was probably ahead of his time um, in terms of a lot of stuff about learning and how it should be embodied um, that that's definitely been something I've had to fight to read um, I've been quite big into the sort of stuff on personalities so Jerome Kagan's been someone that I've read quite a lot of um, he sort of talks about the genetic imprint that we're given as our personality which is a hugely constraining factor. 
people have refined it even further down to I think it's McRae's big five personality traits mm-hmm. suggestion that kind of like a significant percentage of your personality is gifted or in the event that you're neurotic like me it probably isn't a gift um but just to understand that you know and I, I can picture one of the boys at our club who's in one of our age groups who is hugely sensitive and emotional and just trying to encourage some of the coaches to recognize that it might be a flaw it might be a weakness that, that he can't get past in time but it is just part of his his, his characteristic part of who he is that we need to deeply mm. understand and um probably those two bits have helped me develop a deeper understanding of how people learn and also what people bring to learning. Um, and and that's, that's probably been the, the biggest bits. And then I suppose from a kind of like consuming sort of podcasts and, um, and, and sort of online journal stuff, a guy called Nick Shackleton Jones, who speaks a lot about learning. Um, he's, given me a lot of clarity around a lot of the stuff that we sought to do at the FA about helping each person bring to the surface the things that are important to them and then putting them in a position to be able to contend with them. He's got some really, he's written a book, he's got some really neat work in terms of the way that he's put that across, which has been, yeah, it's, it's probably been an echo chamber in that you sort of read it and you find yourself like not a longer and yeah, 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 I'm probably need to be careful about how much of that stuff you consume because it almost yeah. just confirms what you already believe. But Outside of football, they've probably been they've probably been the um, yeah. People. So I know Lee's got two questions I think to, to ask, and I know he's ready to jump in. But I just want to ask you because right at the start of this podcast, I'm sure you said the formal learning wasn't for you. You said, "Oh, that's that sort of you know going to university not for me." But that surprised me at the time you said it. It surprises me even more now when you when you list in the books that you've just read. And the journals you're reading, what's changed, or is it, or is that has that been there all the time? Because that that to me is, you know, that is what you would do at university, those types of things. So is, is that something that's evolved, or is that something that's always been there? You just didn't want to go to uni. What's what's going on? It's a good challenge. Um, I, I think it's the way that I've understood formal education to have been shaped, and. I went and I went back, I went to university in my late 30s, early 40s to do a master's degree. And I still struggled with, and, and like the university that I went to and the lecturers that I was exposed to are, you know, widely published, significant in the coaching um, domain um, and have done some unbelievable work but still deliver a degree program, which is modularized with assessments. They separate this subject from that subject. The assessment protocol is established at the beginning. You have to write 10,000 words, which like your Brian Ashton thing, you couldn't put it in three paragraphs because you've got to write 10,000 words. Uh, If you don't reference it in the right way, you lose marks. And I literally just got over the line in terms of the marks, but ended up with a merit because they assessed my their perception of my experience as opposed to my approach to the academic process, which I guess continues to be my challenge, which is, I think I'm hugely invested in my learning. I'm not hugely invested in other people's view of what my learning should be. If they mm. what my needs are. Is that, is that you just got over the line because you can't, you can't do it or you rebel against the idea of doing it that way. Yeah, probably more the second one, yeah. more, probably more at that stage of life is I wanted the learning 
I don't, having a master's degree is nice. My mum was really happy about it because she could watch me have a gown on and all those kind of things, which perhaps I need to think more about than worrying about what's important to me because you know, yeah. people contribute a lot to your life over time. You want to give a little bit back to or at least give them the feelings that they wanted. But probably more the fact that I didn't need to do the course. I wanted the learning. But what I don't want to have to do is just like do something for the sake of someone's arbitrary marking rubric. It's not, it's just, <laughs> not for me and then you kind of find yourself how much do you allow the institutions to break up little pieces of you before you're broken um and maybe it's just me trying to retain a little bit of my sanity by saying no i'm not doing it in that way last question ben last question Uh, i think you said 25 years or so you've been coaching is that right yeah i'd be really intrigued to hear what your fondest memory is during that time um, Put you right on the spot here, haven't I? Sorry. I think, um, I mean, there are many, and there's bits that, that would come out in various ways. There's like the player that came into our programme at under 10 that you then see making an international debut who comes across to the side of the pitch to wave and say thank you. Those bits are like, they didn't become an international player because of me, they became an international player because of them, but the fact that they can look back and recognise that you played some small part in that is, is pretty powerful. Uh, from a pro- Probably from like a, a real personal perspective, I was fortunate to do some work with one of the England national teams to support one of the coaches, and standing on the side of the pitch, when, the, when your national anthem gets played, in some small part representing your country, that was probably something that I never thought I would achieve. And similarly, and I suppose, you know, Crads will probably dig me in the ribs about this one after my comments about formal learning. I never dreamed in my wildest ambitions that I'd ever get on a pro licence and complete the pro licence and have that qualification. But to go through that process and be exposed to some of the people, the things that they've done in the game that I'm not, you know, never, ever going to achieve and just to spend time picking their brains, that was that was pretty motivating as well. So, yeah, hopefully a couple of personal ones in there, but also ones hopefully that have been a response to some of the people that you might have played some small played some small part in supporting over the years oh fantastic i think that's uh that's certainly um i know i'd, I'd hold those memories uh high in my uh, my memory bank if i ever <laughs> achieved any of those so uh you, you did well with that answer mate again i apologize i put you on the spot um listen matt and i could could spend all night picking your brains, but I'm conscious it's uh, Sunday evening, nearly half past nine. So just take this opportunity to say thanks for your time tonight. Um, I guess as well, thanks for those quite a few years ago now on the A licence, sparking some curiosity with me and Matt and opening a, a door or a window to a, a different way of, of working. And I say it's something that Matt and I have have continued to, to dig into and experience. So thank you for your for your input on that. Um, Matt, anything from you before we let Ben go? No, just just likewise, you know, thank you for coming on tonight and thank you for uh, all the stuff that you did, particularly when we were at the FA. It was uh, very positive working with you all the time. So much appreciated and good to catch up with you. I appreciate you both saying thank you.
best of luck with the book as well. We'll be sure to uh, to get ourselves a copy when that goes that's, out. That's three copies at least, Ben. There yeah. You go. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. Thanks, Ben. Nice. Cheers.